This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist, keeping my eye on the economy every day for you, with no bluster, no bias, and no bull. May 27, 2020. Several economic releases today. Mortgage applications for the week of May 22 were, uh, last week it was down 2.6%. For the week of May 22, it was 2.7%. And the purchase index last week was 6%. And for the week of May 22, up 9%. The refinance index last week was down 6%. And for the week of May 22, down 0.2%. So purchase activity is looking quite strong. The Red Book Retail Sales Index year-over-year change was nine was down 9.5% for the prior week, for the most recent week. Uh, it was down minus 5.5%. So, uh, improvement there, definitely. Still a lot of weakness, but improvement. That's, that's what we need to see. Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index in April was minus 53. Forecast for May was minus 39. Actual for May was minus 27. So much better than April and much better than forecast. Another good sign. And the State Street Investor Confidence Index for April was 73, for May was 73.3, so not much change there. So investors slightly more confident in May, but really not much to write home about. And the Survey of Business Uncertainty, this is a little different. The uh, prior index for April was 223.4. And the actual for May was 284.4. So uh, the higher the index, the more uncertain businesses are. So this shows that uh, uncertainty for businesses is even higher in May than it was in April. And business expectations index was 47.4 in April and only 25 in May. So while investors remain confident and there are signs of, of, a, of a, a rebound in some parts of the economy, uh, businesses are still looking, uh, at least for this survey, they're not looking very confident at all. Now for a few, well, let's just take a look at the market right now. The market is up about 300 points. Disney is reopening their Orlando Park in July on July 11th, and uh, Boeing stock it is up as of right now uh, due to laying off 7,000 employees. So while it's bad news for the employees, it's good news for the bottom line, so the stock is rising. And so just a few notes on some miscellaneous items here. Um, Medical science. Many scientists feel a duty to dampen the enthusiasm uh, on any kind of research, I guess is what this is saying. They say a vaccine could take much longer because little is known about the disease and how bodies will react to attempts at immunization. In fact, some warn we may never create a vaccine for COVID-19. Vaccines are usually developed over many years and even decades. A 2013 paper from Dutch scientists says the average vaccine took 10.7 years and had only a 6% success rate from start to finish. We definitely need one faster than 10 years. Uh, there are big questions about how long an immune response protects patients for. 
most scientists think having had the disease confers some immunity, but we don't know how long it lasts. Immunity to SARS only lasted a couple of years. And uh, next up is um, some notes on China. China hits back at the audit plan that imperils listings on U.S. exchanges. The proposal by Washington that might affect that might in effect force companies from China to delist from U.S. exchanges. The U.S. Senate unanimously passed a bill last week that would force companies to delist from U.S. stock exchanges if they did not comply with U.S. regulatory audits, something many Chinese companies are unwilling or unable to do. Although the U.S. and China have agreed a, a pause to the escalation of trade tariffs, re relations have been fraying on other fronts, including cross-border investment and Beijing's move to impose a national security law on Hong Kong. The U.S. bill, which is yet to be passed by the House of Representatives, would force companies to delist if they fail to comply with audits by the Public, Count Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the U.S. body uh, for three consecutive years. OECD nations are set for $17 trillion of extra public debt. Rich countries are set to take on at least $17 trillion of extra public debt as they battle the economic consequences of the pandemic. As sharp drops in tax revenues are expected to dwarf the stimulus measures put in place to battle the disease. Average government financial liabilities are expected to rise from 109% of GDP to more than 137% this year, leaving many with public debt burdens similar to the level in Italy. Additional debt of that scale would amount to a minimum of $13,000 per person across the 1.3 billion people that live in the OECD member countries. A decade ago, economic thinking suggested that beyond 90% of GDP, government debt levels became unsustainable. So now we're, t now we're talking about 137%, so much, much worse than we saw a decade ago. Many countries will face an economic environment similar to that experienced by Japan since its financial bubble burst in the early 1990s. And as most people know, Japan has had a pretty stagnant economy ever since that happened. So this suggests that uh, the economies in the OECD countries are going to be stagnant for quite some time. But we will see. Uh, lessons from Japan. While Mr. Abe is for, uh, famous for economic stimulus, his term has involved Two rises in consumption tax from 5 to 8% in 2014 and then to 10% last October. Both times the rises drove the economy into recession. Smart move. All right. Let's see what else. Okay, May 26. U.S. concern amounts over jobs lost forever. Joblessness rising to 14.7% in April and about 39 million Americans left unemployed. There is growing concern that any recovery will be tainted by fewer jobs, lower wages, and less income than many experienced just a few months ago, as I have been saying for quite a while. Household, hoarded household savings start in the European recovery. Bank deposits are surging across Europe as people respond to the economic and social upheaval of the pandemic by saving more, fueling fears among economists that consumers will not bail out the continent's shrinking economy. Savings rates in four of Europe's five largest economies rose sharply to well above the long-run averages in March. Bank deposits in Germany fell sharply, but this was a sign households had withdrawn cash. Germans tend to prefer to hold their savings in cash during a crisis, and a similar phenomena occurred at the height of the financial crisis. Economists warned that consumers' reluctance to spend the extra money, save, spend the extra money saved risks depriving Europe's stricken retailers of the boost they need to recover from what is expected to be the worst recession of the post-war post -war era. <clears throat> 
So of course, if if Europe is weak, then you know all their trading partners are going to be weak too. So these big blocks like the U.S., uh, the European Union, and um, and China, Japan, these these big driving forces, if they're going to be weak, then other places are going to be weak too. I mean, really, everybody's going to be weak, but some might be weaker than others. And it sounds like Europe is going to be uh, kind of a weak spot. Is an interesting uh, note on. Uh, billionaires. Billionaires may be different from the rest of us, but they are also different from each other in how they become rich. Generally, they divide into two classes, innovators and inheritors. What is striking about the 10 richest U.S. billionaires is that they are mostly innovators. Microsoft and Amazon are both individually worth more today than all of Germany's 30 biggest companies listed on the DAX, which is their stock market. By contrast, many of the richest billionaires in Europe hail from old money. Their median age is also almost 20 years older than their U.S. counterparts. Globally, fortunes were increasingly self-made rather than inherited and were emerging strongly in a developing world. All right, moving on. Let's see, I just talked about that. Well, public debt is set to approach 200% of GDP in Greece, 160% in Italy, 130% in Portugal, and 120% in France and Spain. So these countries are really taking on a lot of debt to fight this pandemic. Let's see here, what else? Okay, I already read that. Um, that's not really important. Singapore fears biggest drop in GDP since independence. Singapore has warned that its economy could shrink 7% after the pandemic and the sharpest contraction since independence. A contraction of 5% or more this year would mark the steepest fall since independence from Malaysia in 1965. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty stark. A blow to business, dining, and entertainment. London, restauranteur, London restaurateurs fear the virus crisis spells the end for city lunches as staff increasingly work from home and transport operators curb commuter numbers. Old-timers in the restaurant trade said coronavirus would merely accelerate the death of a traditional long lunching that had been dwindling since the financial crisis, when scrutiny of the financial sector prompted many banking and brokerage businesses to slash expense accounts. Now, this is kind of getting along the lines of what I was thinking about, you know, the other day, wondering about what's going to happen to all those businesses and restaurants and bars and all those places in downtown areas if people start working more from home. A lot of those restaurants and businesses and bars are, are are going to see a big decline in business, and it's going to be per it could be permanent. And if that's the case, then you're going to either see more job losses, jobs not coming back, or businesses going out of business. So this is going to be really uh, interesting to see how all this plays out with uh, the new trend in people working from home. How's that going to affect downtown businesses? Okay, just a couple quick notes on housing. In April, buyer demand was so strong that 56% of existing home sales were on the market less than a month. But, of course, due to the temporary economic contraction, sales posted the biggest monthly drop since 2010. So the ones that were going went fast. See what else is here. 
mortgage rates are still very, very low. So again, it's still a great time to buy a home or refinance your home. All right. And now just a couple of notes from an article about Governor Walls in Minnesota. He says, restrictions are going to be staying in place until we have a vaccine. Well, I can tell you we are opening gradually here, so I'm not sure what he means by restrictions. You know, in other words, which ones are, are going to stay in place until we have a vaccine. But I'm assuming capacity is going to, that basically means capacity is going to be limited. They're going to have social distancing still, people wearing masks and all kinds of other things that have been put in place right now. Things will gradually open if trends continue to improve with the virus. But I, it, it sounds like some things, if not a lot of things, are going to stay in place until we have a vaccine. That's what he's saying. So if you live in Minnesota, expect a very different way of life compared to the pre-pandemic for many, many months because most experts are saying we won't have a vaccine until at least the end of the year, if not longer. So prepare for a different way of life. 50% of hospitality-related businesses could be lost forever, according to a survey by Hospitality Minnesota, which is an organization that uh, is uh, comprised of hospitality-related businesses. They could lose 145,000 jobs, and that's just in Minnesota. That's a lot of jobs. So these restrictions that are going to be staying in place, you know, they um, there's a definitely a fine line between walking between protecting people's health and safety and protecting businesses from being lost and jobs from being lost. Uh, Health Hospitality Minnesota wants the state to create a $120 million loan program for the industry. And hospitality accounts for 10% of Twin Cities economy and 8% of greater Minnesota economy. So it's a big deal. Next up are a few notes from an article, or actually this is uh, some recommendations from the CDC on school reopening recommendations. Daily temperature checks and or symptom checking. Face coverings for all staff and children over two years old. Desks spaced six feet apart. Staggered schedules. In other words, some kids come earlier to school, some kids come late to school and stay later and whatever. No cafeteria or playground use. Installed partitions and physical barriers. No field trips, no toy sharing, and restrictions on outside visitors, including parents. And the article went on to state that it might just be the case that with all these restrictions in place, and these are just a very, very few. I mean, I didn't even read the article. It was so long. Uh, or, or I didn't read the list of recommendations. It was so long. I mean, it was really, really long. And so they're suggesting that because there's going to be so many restrictions in place, a lot of parents might just keep their kids at home anyway and keep homeschooling them. But the problem is we need to get schools and daycares back open so that parents can go back to work. And if parents aren't willing to put their kids back into school, then they're not going to be able to go back to work. At least they're not going to be able to go back into the office. They might still be able to work from home, but they won't be able to go back to the office. So this is uh, another big deal that we have to worry about here. Now from a few notes from a blog from Brian Westbury, well-known economist. He's uh, saying that there's signs of economic life here. 
rail car, rail car traffic, hotel occupancy, motor vehicle gas purchases, and air travel are all still down substantially from a year ago, but all have moved off their lows. He's looking at jobless claims and federal tax receipts to determine how the economy is doing. He says, typically, the average level of initial claims for a month peaks two months before the economy hits bottom. So that's interesting. April looks like it was the highest month for initial claims, which signals an economic bottom should come in June. What is also exceedingly clear is that this recession is not like previous ones, so we're wa also watching continuing, continuing unemployment claims as opposed to initial unemployment claims, which keep rising. Typically, these peak around one month after the economy hits bottom, so if they peak soon, that's a very good sign the economy is already growing again. In the first few months of 2020, January through March, with withheld income and payroll tax receipts were up 19.7%. That's roughly what we'd expect given this is compared to January through March of 2015, which they're using as a, as a similar kind of period. That's roughly what we'd expect given economic growth and inflation from 2015 to 2020. But receipts in April 2020 were up only 2.6% versus April 2015, showing how economic, how economic activity fell off a cliff. The good news is that so far in May through the, through the 21st, these receipts are up 2.9% versus May of 2015. That's less bad than the April comparison, and less bad signals more economic activity. So 2.6% uh, increase in April versus April 2015, and 2.9% increase in May versus May of 2015. So um, not much of, a, of an improvement, but improvement of any kind is better than getting worse. Now for some notes from a, uh, a webinar from NABE the National Association of Business Economists, and they were talking about the how to restart the economy. Three different presenters. First presenter had the following to say, the CDC says antibody test antibody testing is currently being under, that is being undertaken is awful. Um, so, you know, you can take that for what you want. Some people trust the CDC, some people don't. And if, if there's all these tests being done and the CDC is basically saying all of them are awful, well, that's kind of a blanket statement. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah, take that for what for what you think it might mean. Don't need herd immunity if testing, tracing, and isolation are aggressive enough. Aggressive enough, they said. Penalty effects, uh, incentive effects, facilitation effects, and information effects are all things that can play a part in determining how and when and how quickly to open up the economy. The incentive to not work is real due to the $600 a week extra unemployment benefits. Uh, facilitation effects like closing schools and daycares keeps people home, which this person suggests is a good thing because it keeps the virus from spreading. Information effects like the power of government to change people's actions, but information must be credible. 40% of work can be done at home and this is increasing. The unemployment rate hasn't risen as high as would be expected with so much locked down due to so many people continuing to work from home. Leisure and hospitality industry is a big problem with reopening due to lots of contact, and this person said it was very dangerous for them to reopen very much, if at all. can open more things if we keep leisure and hospitality closed. So in other words, if we keep bars and restaurants and other leisure hospitality type industries closed, which hurts them and their workers and their businesses, we can open up more things 
throughout the rest of the economy. So they would basically be a sacrificial lamb, but they would, of course, need to be supported by government. So um, that's an interesting take. Schools won't reopen if parents don't want to send their kids back. Yep. Uh, we need to reopen the schools and daycare so parents can go back to work, like I said. Uh, so we need to fund them to improve safety measures. Uh, we should give a bigger bailout to leisure and hospitality to keep people away from bars and restaurants and, and we, because we need to avoid a second wave of the, vi of the virus. The second presenter said, economy bottomed out seven to eight weeks ago. We need another stimulus package and we must help out state and local governments. A large portion of state and local budgets are for payrolls. So if we don't bail them out or we don't um, help them out with the next package, uh, we will see massive government service layoffs such as firemen, policemen, trash collectors, and the like, teachers, without help for state and local governments. And we need, about, we need a minimum of $500 billion. Uh, cases, revenue losses, population are all factors in determining how much each state and local government will get. You, unemployment benefits uh, is the best countercyclical program that we have, according to this presenter, because there's a very high propensity to spend that money. Um, payroll tax cuts are the worst idea, according to this presenter, and it won't have any impact in the short term. Now, I have to disagree with that. If you cut people's payrolls, payroll taxes, they're immediately going to have more money in their bank account when they get their their weekly or biweekly paycheck or direct deposit. And I guess one thing you could say is if you have more money in your account, the question is, are you going to spend it? Um, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, if you can't go anywhere and can't do anything, you probably won't. But why would you not have any more propensity to spend that money than if you had, um, if you were on unemployment benefits? I suppose it's because if you're on unemployment benefits, that means you have lost a lot of your money and you're going to spend it. Whereas if you are getting a payroll tax cut, that means you're still employed, which means you still have income and you don't don't necessarily need to spend it. So I suppose there's an argument to be made for, for, for that uh, part of, of his statement. Uh, seniors will be reluctant to go back to certain activities and the rebound will be gradual. 2022 is likely when we will get back to pre-pandemic GDP levels. A lot of economic damage is in small businesses, and so, but listed companies are not hurting as much. So the listed companies are the ones that are on the stock exchange or on the stock market, and they're the ones that are not hurting as bad. And because of that, the stock market uh, has been rebounding. So just because the stock market has been rebounding doesn't mean the rest of the economy is doing as well as those listed stocks. So be careful when you see the stock market rebounding and trying to equate that with a massive rebound in the economy. That's just not the case. However, it, the stock market does foreshadow what the overall economy will do. Um, and the question is, what will be the lag between what the stock market does and what the economy does? And what will be the correlation between how much the stock market recovers versus how much the economy recovers. I think this time it's going to be quite different because so many businesses are still shut down. So while investors might be confident that the economy can improve, there's still a lot of economic activity that's uh, shut down. So it could be different this time around. Industries hardest hit by the virus are lagging way behind the overall stock market. 
which I kind of just said. Rapid recovery should see those stocks doing better than they are. And so things like airlines and, and restaurants and hotels, cruise ships and all that, they're, they're lagging way behind. And if the, we, if the recovery was expected to be better than, or if, if the recovery was expected to be stronger, then these stocks should be doing better than they are. So this suggests that maybe the, the economic recovery won't be quite as strong as the stock market itself is suggesting. Stock market is pretty fairly valued, though, right now, according to this presenter, based on earnings and interest rate forecasts. Third presenter said that he's, he's looking for 10 million more people to, be, to have lost their jobs in the May jobs report, which comes up um, next week. And the unemployment rate could hit 20% for May. Uh, the Fed balance sheet is expected to be about $9 trillion by the end of the year. Uh, that's about double where it was before the pandemic hit. So that just means the central bank is pumping out a lot of money. Uh, really no inflation pressure right now, though, despite all that money hitting the economy, uh, except in oil. The market has dropped 34% since the top, and it's only, but it has recovered 33% from the bottom. But that doesn't mean it's back to where it was, because once you go from the top to the bottom, it's harder to get back up. You need a bigger recovery to get back up to the top. Market bottoms, this is interesting, market bottoms four months before the recession ends on average. So if the market bottomed in April, which many people think, then we could be looking at uh, the recession ending in August. Um, could even be sooner, depending on how fast things get back up and running. Uh, we're likely to see higher taxes to pay for all the stimulus uh, in the coming years. The IMS says 50 emerging market countries will need help. So there's going to be more money from the international community going to help these smaller countries. And, of course, that means money from the United States as well. We'll see how much. Masks, staggered shifts, and consistent testing daily at workplaces is suggested. The stock market is betting on a rapid recovery, but it is not always right, like I said. Po policies are a lot different now than during the Great Depression. During the Great Depression, they, so, such as we're not int raising interest rates like we did during the Great Depression, we're not raising taxes, we're not allowing bank failures, and uh, we don't have problems with tariffs, at least not like we did back then. But I put a question mark on that because, of course, of what's going on between the United States and China. So three of the four things that really made the Great Depression a lot worse than it might have been are, are not taking place now. So that's a good thing. In other words, we have a lot better policies in place. And so that basically is suggesting we're not going to be returning to Great Depression kind of situation. All right, now from a, a couple notes from an article on testing from the University of Minnesota. They propose what's called a smart testing uh, framework. It says that smart testing for COVID-19 virus and antibodies was published, which includes having the right infrastructure. Factors such as institutional support and supply chain availability must be in place. The right population. Testing must be targeted based on the goals of testing. The right test. Different types of tests, e.g. molecular, antigen, antibody, are appropriate in different settings. Right interpretation, the test sensitivity and specificity, and how well it performs at low versus high levels of disease in the population must be considered. 
and the right action based on test results what actions are needed to minimize less Ill to minimize illness deaths and disease spread now go back up here it said one of the things was the right test different types of tests molecular antigen and antibody i do know that the united that the university of minnesota is doing antibody testing but remember what the cdc said earlier that i talked about in this episode that all the testing out there is awful so draw your own conclusions from that kind of statement basically they're saying they're, they don't have any confidence in what anybody's doing for testing in other words you need to rely on us you need to listen to us and you need to do what we tell you to do rather than get all excited about all this antibody testing so they're not putting out a very optimistic message to the general public okay and I'm just going to read this real quick article here clinical trials test blood pressure drug losartan i believe that's how you pronounce it university of minnesota medical school researchers have launched two new clinical trials to test whether the blood pressure medication losartan can prevent lung injury in people recently diagnosed with covid19 one trial examines its efficacy in those hospitalized with COVID-19 pneumonia. The second, its ability to prevent hospitalization in patients diagnosed with COVID-19. The trials are based on Losartan's effects on the hormone angiotensin II, which normally maintains blood pressure. The novel coronavirus interferes with the mechanism that regulates the hormone's level. This leads to high blood pressure and lung damage. Losartan, however, blocks the action of the hormone. The researchers hope this will counteract the effects of the excess angiotensin II hormone and prevent lung damage in COVID-19 patients. The inpatient trial takes place in Minnesota at M Health View, at M Health Fairview Hospitals. Losartan has an established safety profile and is readily available. We wanted to test a readily available, cheap, FDA-approved generic drug with potential efficacy against COVID-19. Losartan is different from the other treatments being tested right now. It's not an antiviral medication. We're trying to turn COVID-19 into an everyday coronavirus. In other words, the common cold. So again, more interesting research being done by the University of Minnesota. Now for an update on the coronavirus. For the world, the death rate yesterday was 6.19%, down from 6.22% the prior day. Fatality growth rate was 1.2%, up from 0.3% the prior day by a factor of 4. For the United States, we had a death rate of 5.83%, down from 5.85%, and growth rate of fatalities 0.8%, up from 0.5%. But of course, unfortunately, we hit the grim milestone of 100,000 fatalities from COVID-19 on May 26th. So even though we're seeing some improvements in some areas and in some measures, over 100,000 people have died from this virus. We simply cannot discount that. You cannot forget that these are lives lost, and this has been an absolute horrible tragedy. Okay, and finally, I'm going to share two tips today on unemployment, how to stay sane during unemployment. These uh, come under the fourth commandment of be good to yourself. Tip number 32 is eat healthy foods. 
yes, healthy foods can help your, well, <laughs> not only can they help your, your, uh, your health, but they can help your immune system, and that will help you to, you know, possibly ward off this virus even more. So eat healthy foods, vegetables, fruits, meats, if you like meat, if you, if you want to eat meat, you know, get the right, get the right mix. Stay away from fast food and junk food. You'll feel better and you'll have a better immune system. Tip number 33 is get enough sleep. This can be hard for some people, although right now I think people are probably getting more sleep because they're not working quite as much, but I don't know. That's just a guess. But yes, get enough sleep. I try to get seven hours. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. Um, But uh, I think uh, getting enough sleep will, will definitely help you as well. You'll be better able to tackle your day. You won't be quite as drawn down. You'll be better able to handle your emotions and your situations that you're dealing with with better sleep and better focus. So eat healthy foods and get enough sleep. That's all I have for today, folks. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow me. Spread the word. Listen to previous episodes if you'd like previous tips on how to stay sane during unemployment. And tune in tomorrow as we discuss durable goods orders, GDP, which is the second, uh, or which would be the revised uh, report for the first quarter, uh, initial jobless claims, corporate profits, pending home sales, and Kansas City manufacturing. This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist. Stay safe and stay sane. Thanks for listening. Have a good rest of your day.